Rebel Force Radio is brought to you in part by Little Debbie Snacks, bakers of all galactic goodness, like mini donuts, star crunch, cosmic cupcakes, cosmic brownies, nutty bars, and much more. It's all about celebrating your love of a galaxy far, far away. And Little Debbie is the fan's choice for all those sweet moments. Little Debbie, official snack of Rebel Force Radio, Rancho Obi-Wan, and fans around the galaxy. From Tops comes the all-new digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. For the first time ever, collect and trade everything from legendary 1977 Star Wars cards to new cards featuring exclusive content, all from the comfort of your mobile device. Star Wars Card Trader. These are the cards you're looking for. Rebel Force Radio presents Star Wars Influences. You've taken your first step into a larger world. All right, welcome back to Star Wars Influences, Rebel Force Radio's look at everything that inspired and contributed to the vision of Star Wars as we see it on the silver screen, along with the positive influence it has on fans worldwide. And fans worldwide are all talking about Rogue One, and that's what we're going to be spending this episode of Star Wars Influences talking about. We have a couple of great books, The Art of Rogue One, and the Rogue One Ultimate Visual Guide, which we will be referencing throughout this episode. So if you have copies of those books, go snag them now and join along with us as we review those books. We couldn't do it without this man sitting here with me. He joins us every month when we do this show, and it's been months since we've done this show. (laughs) But he's here with us, ladies and gentlemen, from London, England. It's noted Star Wars artist and expert, Paul Bateman. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Not my fault. Well, kind of my fault, I think. We're always busy, aren't we, Jimmy? So there's, it's either one of us or both of us. or Yeah, you know, you know. it's 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 hard to, to keep these schedules, especially when we're uh, dealing with, uh, you know, you're all the way on the other side of an ocean. And, uh, and so um, sometimes that comes into play. And really the whole reason I wanted to introduce this show, Star Wars Influences, all those years ago, why I wanted to introduce it is because our late night recording schedule doesn't always sync up with you out in London, Paul. So I always want to make sure that you have a forum to uh, dazzle us with your Star Wars knowledge here on Rebel Force Radio. <laughs> Any excuse to chat to you, dude, and, yeah. and you know, is there whatever the crazy time is? Just uh, yeah, if it's four o'clock in the morning, I'm not exactly on top four, so it's nice, right. nice to do it in the middle of an English day. Right, right. So we get you, we get you in prime time here, and uh, and I'm I'm really grateful to have you. Of course, you did give your initial Rogue One review to us on uh, Rebel Force Radio on the episode we released on December fifteenth which was a stellar episode and has been downloaded to death. So uh, I I recommend uh, anyone who didn't hear that to hear Paul's initial thoughts on Rogue One. Go back and check out that episode of Rebel Force Radio. But we're here, Paul. We have you all by yourself, and uh, the floor is going to be yours to talk about all things Rogue One, most specifically the art of Rogue One and the aesthetic of Rogue One. But, But before we get into all that, um, this is the first time we've had you on Rebel Force Radio since we lost Carrie Fisher. We lost our princess. And uh, I am uh, still feeling quite drained from that. Um, and, uh, you know, now with the news that she's been joined by her mother, the legendary Debbie Reynolds, 
it's just uh, the impact of of uh, Carrie's loss is uh, just been magnified by the fact that her mother essentially shut down and decided to join Carrie in the afterlife. So um, with all of those thoughts weighing relatively heavily on, on fandom in general at the moment, you know, uh, it's, uh, I think it's important that we, we talk about it and uh, this is a good time to uh, really uh, give us some good thoughts on Carrie and, and what sort of impact she had on you, Paul, as a Star Wars fan. Well, I think, I think the thing that's been amazing about, about a tragedy like this, you know, the, the way that fans have reacted to this has been quite amazing. I mean, I, I feel as though anybody who has anything to do do with Star Wars that's that's passed away, you know, there's there's often a, a, a you know a very wide felt reaction. But with this one especially, it kind of feels as though everybody really felt like a level of intimacy with Carrie, whether they met her or not. You know, that 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 really impacted upon them. You can just tell by the outpouring of love all over the web, can't you? I mean, like every place, there's just people kind of doing sketches and writing poems, and you know, expressing their their kind of loss in all kinds of different ways. And uh, it's pretty amazing, really, because I think like, there are a lot of people that you know are equally famous as as Carrie that didn't get that kind of you know kickback, you know, and and uh, it just shows you how how cherished she she was by by everybody, you know. I mean, me as a kid, I mean, I you know, I was reminiscing online the other day, just sort of saying that. <clears throat> it's it's funny you know, a lot of kids remember the bikini with great fondness you know mm-hmm. but for me mm-hmm. the, the moment when i saw return of the jedi and thought carrie was kind of like super cool was uh when she kind of jumps on the bike and just kind of you know luke has to rush to catch up you know and he's he's like wait you know and, and off yeah. she goes punches the bike and away she's she's off you know and i remember thinking like wow she's super cool you know and i, I guess that's you know i just even as a kid i always liked girls that were kind of super empowered and you know, confident and um, had a mind of their own and were doing their own thing, you know. So so she was she was a unique princess, wasn't she? She wasn't like all these other princesses that were around in uh, things like uh, the Sinbad movies back in the 70s. Oh, right, so, yeah. All tended to be kind of cleavage and, and uh, rescue me, didn't they? You know, and uh, Carrie definitely kind of broke the mold in that department, didn't she? Oh. And then and just her amazing writing. I mean, she's so funny. I mean, you can't. You couldn't put carry on stage for five minutes without everybody kind of cracking up, could you? I mean, just, yeah, amazing person. It was funny. Mark Hamill said earlier this week that it was a real badge of honor to be able to make Carrie laugh, to crack her yeah. up. And so she always brought that element, I believe, to any room she set foot into. It's, it's yeah. like she's <laughs> going to outwit everyone in this room. But if we could sneak one past the goalie, that would be yeah. great. <laughs> and, um, and, and she, she, she did have that, Im- that sort of impact on, on people when she was around them. She just kind of mm. brought out, um, you know, with her own brand of humor and personality and, uh, just the way she would light up a room, it, it would bring out oftentimes the best in people um, because they would either be trying to impress her or, you know, God forbid, compete with her. <laughs> I, I certainly want, wouldn't want to be on the other end of that conversation with her because she was, she was very sharp tongued. And, <laughs> and, and we loved her for that. I mean, that's what we expected from Carrie Fisher. I, I, never, I never met her properly like you did, Jimmy. I remember being backstage at one of the celebrations once. I was working on a, a documentary with a documentary crew and, and, and uh, Carrie was knocking about, you know. 
and I just kind of you know bumped into her a couple of times and said hi and, and she was very friendly and stuff the thing that 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 was that you know special about Carrie as well you know people often talk about her you know a snappy tongue and a wit and and uh, you know a personality and stuff like that but I think something that's not talked about a lot is a warmth you know I felt like she was a very warm person you know and and uh, you know she's very very sort of I don't know, very kind of kind person, you know, I mean, you can, you, I mean, a lot of it kind of, you know, people only saw when she was hanging out with Gary, you know, but I think it was in her anyway. She seemed like a very sweet person, you know, which isn't a word that very often kind of goes with Gary in the press, you know, they're, they're quick to kind of talk about how, uh, how sharp she could be, you know, but, uh, but I think it was always kind of, it was always paired up with a, a real kind of sweet nature. I think, I think Gary was always a very friendly, warm and kind of caring person, you know, and I'm sure her family are feeling it tremendously. You know, now she's gone. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a sad loss. And uh, if uh, if it was possible, I'd I'd totally ban anybody that's that's anything to do with souls from popping it. It's it's uh, it should never happen. You know. Mm. <laughs> what about you know from an aesthetic standpoint, and kind of a silly one at that. And I I don't know why I've decided you're the guy who's going to have the definitive word on this, but. Uh, <laughs> Your thoughts on the Star Puffs hairstyle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I always assumed that was something to do with uh, George's ex. Like, wasn't it? His wife had hair like that back when he was an, when he was a film student, didn't he? And then there was, you know, yeah. there's yeah. the other thing. Somebody uh, actually, somebody was actually walking around the the USC campus with the Star Puffs hairstyle. Are, are you saying that was Marsha Lucas? Yeah, there are there are pictures of Marsha without hair, like you know, back in the early seventies. So no I don't way. know. Really, I'm gonna have to look this yeah, up. Yeah. Star, some star puffs but, on Marsha uh, Lucas. I don't even know what Marsha Lucas really looks like. So, um, I mean, she's been out of the spotlight by design, I believe, for quite some uh, time. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that, and there's there's obviously there's the uh, Queen Freya from the old Flash Gordon comic books that uh, Alex Raymond drew. She had a similar kind of head, hairdo, but she, she had a third bun on the back of her head as well. But uh, pretty close pretty close to it but uh yeah she i i think i think if if uh if you've been played by anybody but carrie i think you know it could have been despite the distinctiveness of that haircut i think she could have been quite forgettable but carrie really is the reason why we all kind of remember leia with such fondness isn't she i mean like you know everybody kind of talks about it like almost like it's um like it's wrong to sort of talk about Leia all the time because Carrie was so much more than just Princess Leia, you know. But uh, I think I think she brought so much of herself to the to the role. I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of you know focusing on Leia because I think it was it was 100% Carrie. I think she came through, you know. No matter how, what she did with her accent or or uh, you know what she did with her hair, you could still kind of feel Carrie coming right through that role. I think, especially more and more as it went on, I kind mm-hmm. of felt like yeah. yeah. You know, when she's strangling Jabber and stuff, you think like, yeah, that's one hundred percent carry. You know? Yeah, <laughs> we, and and you know, I mean, going back to the hair and and the the strength of her personality uh, coming together. What what people often forget is that when Carrie was on the screen in nineteen seventy seven with that hair, it did attract a lot of attention. That hairstyle is absurd. It's iconic now, and people are used <laughs> to it. But you forget. That it was just like, what a goofy, goofy looking hairstyle. And here she is, though, this young actress, uh, relatively unknown at that point in time. I mean, based on, you know, her star power at that point was based on her family for the most part. And she was, uh, you know, working her way up. But here she is 
being firm as hell to Darth Vader with this goofy haircut, and you mm-hmm. never even think about it for a second because nice. of the fact that she is just so powerful and assertive in that role that the 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 novelty of that odd hairstyle just mm-hmm. doesn't even matter because she pulled it off. And she does the same thing going toe-to-toe with Peter Cushing. She does yeah. the same thing going toe-to-toe with Mark and, and Harrison. It's... Invader, it's Invader, of course. The the strength of her character really just, bam! It just pushed through and and resonated so much. And and by doing so, she became such a trendsetter for Mm. uh, uh, female action roles and and just you know in general. You know, it's easy to kind of you know put a lot of Star Wars, you know, the success of Star Wars squarely at George's feet, and you know he is you know, the lion's share of why Star Wars is what it is, is, is down to him, you know, but I think that, you know, all the different ways that different people contributed, Carrie definitely was, was that person that made it work, you know, like the fact that the princess was kind of, you felt like when, when they turned up at the prison cell, probably 10 minutes later, she would have figured out a way to get out of there on her own, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. felt like, you know, whenever she was getting rescued, you always kind of felt like, yeah, you know, this is somebody who could just do this for herself. She doesn't necessarily need the boys to turn up. But, it, you know, in this this moment, it helps. But, like, there was never any doubt that she she wasn't quite capable of rescuing herself in any situation, you know. And I think I think that it's easy now to kind of, you know, see these kind of strong characters in in, uh, in cinema and, and just kind of go, well, you know, that's just how it is. But in the 70s, it definitely was not the norm, and she definitely broke the mold and uh, did a great service to, to uh, you know, to actresses all over the world, I think, in terms of kind of making it, you know, acceptable, and it sounds ridiculous now, but I mean, back then, you know, it was so unusual, you know, that the female characters were quite often just kind of pushed into the background that, you know, they're a secondary character or a character that wasn't treated with the same respect as the male lead, you know, unless it was a huge, huge star, you know, I mean, it was quite, quite common for, for women to just get rescued, wasn't it, Jimmy? Right. You know? I mean, it's straight out of the James Bond book, you know, yeah. it, it almost seems like that's uh, always the case. At least it was in the 60s and 70s. Um, Carrie, though, I mean, when you talk about the big three, she's as much as a part of it as Mark and Harrison, you know, Uh, she's, she's definitely up there with, uh, you know, the big three, she's, she's 33% of that and, uh, rightfully so. So I was, I was, sorry, Jimmy, I was wondering like, you know, how this is going to impact on her story going forward too, you know, because I was looking forward to finding out, you know, how how her relationship like evolves with Luke, and you know, it's going to be interesting to sort of find out how this impacts upon eight and nine. You know, I mean, obviously, totally secondary to her life, but you know, just as a character, I'm curious about about how this is going to impact on Star Wars. You know, right? We had heard that she was scheduled to be in nine, um, or at least there was paperwork done, you know, to lock her in for episode nine, but it could be quite possible that princess Leia, you know, princess Leia, the character actually dies off in episode Mm -hmm. eight. I mean, that could be already in the books. We don't know. So we're only assuming that there's going to be some sort of uphill struggle for the, Mm -hmm. uh, filmmakers and the storytellers, but perhaps that ship has already sailed. I, you never know. You just never know. I just hope it feels like a good, 
like she gets, a, you know, yes. the right send off that we all want, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. especially after the tragedy of losing Han and stuff in the story. You kind of think like, I don't really want a tragedy every movie, thanks. Even if it's even if it's driven by real life, you know? Right. It's like, uh, I kind of, uh, I'd like Leia to have a happy ending, you know? Like, mm. in, in some shape or form. But, uh, yeah, we'll see, I guess. We'll see. We'll see. So, Carrie Fisher... Um, boy, she's going to be missed. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. So, um, on the other side of the coin, we have Rogue One, an incredible new film, which, uh, I'll tell you what, the end of Rogue One, when you, when you, spoilers, (laughs) do we still have to say spoilers now that it's January? Uh, spoilers, um, at the end of the film, when Princess Leia is revealed on board the Rebel Blockade Runner, um, you know, uh, wow, I have uh, still not gone back to see Rogue One since Carrie has passed away. I was planning to go maybe today or tomorrow. And uh, I I know I'm going to just sort of linger on that moment there at the end of the film for uh, probably an extended period, maybe all the way through the credits, uh, because it's... um, you know, it's her voice. Clearly, it's 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 you know, it's young Carrie you're seeing there essentially. Yeah. So it's that's that's kind of heavy. And then I watched A New Hope, my New Year's tradition. I always watch A New Hope, and mm. uh, boy, oh boy, do you see that film so much differently after watching no. Rogue One? I mean, you get you get so inside Tarkin's head mm. most significantly. Because yeah, you're yeah. like, whoa, this cat's coming off, uh, you know, <laughs> blasting Jetta and Scarif, and now he wants to really test this bad boy. I mean, you're just there's such a level of anticipation to see what this sucker does, even though I've known what it does for 40 years. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how uh, Rogue One it's, has added that new perspective. It's wonderful how it's expanded that, yeah, for sure. I mean, because like you, Jimmy, you know, it's just like being so crazy familiar with that to then to then have something that kind of expands upon it. I mean, it really does almost feel like a kind of a cutscene or something, you know, the whole not just Carrie, but the the whole Vader thing and everything. It really does dovetail so nicely for me. I don't I, I don't know how everybody feels, but for me, I just kind of felt like it fit so well. You know, I really, I really bought into the whole kind of you know Tantavi kind of getting away and everything. And I thought, in a way. You know, there's something kind of beautiful about this movie still being at the cinema, you know, and, and there's Carrie's character represented at the end of the film. You know, like I'm sure some people think it's kind of weird, but for me, I just kind of think there's something really kind of beautifully circular about that. You know, I think it's really nice that that she's a part of this movie, you know, in some strange way, you know, and that uh, I think there wasn't the audio pulled from the earlier movies and what have you, Jimmy? Oh, yeah. There's no question that uh, her one lo- her one word, one line of dialogue, hope, is pulled from the, uh, this is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan right. Kenobi. You're our only hope, you know? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, that, but, yeah, it's clearly pulled. Hope. Hope. <laughs> so. And that film was just, oh. I mean, I mean, it's, I know, I know I pretty much said this last time we talked, Jimmy, but like, you know, I, I went in with a kind of what I consider a healthy level of cynicism because I didn't want to be disappointed, you know, yes, I yeah. know, go in feeling a bit cynical. That won't be a bad thing. And man, I came out bouncing like a kangaroo. I mean, it, it just looked so perfect for me. I mean, I just thought it looked amazing. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew, I knew the second that film finished, I was like, I cannot wait to get my hands on that book. So you know, the, the book in question is the art of, 
Absolutely. Rogue One. And this is a really great book in the tradition of Star Wars art of books. This is written by Josh Cushions. Josh is an old friend of mine. He used to work in a Lucasfilm PR under uh, people like Lynn Hale. And uh, lo and behold, he has uh, emerged as quite the writer. This is a great book. And Josh does a fantastic job of uh, taking us through the conceptual history of Rogue One. And uh, it's, it's a really incredible book. And I just have been flipping through the pages as we're talking right now, Paul, and um, mm. uh, taking note of evolution of uh, designs for the Death Trooper. And it appears that the Death Trooper was originally going to be white, but they, uh, they went with a black design. So uh, maybe that's a good place to start here, if if you'd like, or if you have uh, something uh, in particular you want to talk about. But that's something that's jumping out at me right now, is just taking a look at uh, some of this uh, Death Trooper design. Well, yeah, the Death Trooper stuff was really interesting. And, and uh, I mean, I you know, the first book I've had a chance to kind of really deep dive into has been The Art of Rogue One. Um, I haven't had a chance to look at the ultimate visual guide yet, apart from, you know, just checking out all the lovely pictures and reading a tiny little bit of it. But but the th- one of the things that was really interesting to me in the uh, about this version of of the art of you know like normally they can be a bit spartan on the on the kind of you know text front can't they they can maybe just not be a lot of writing and mostly pictures but this one has like a real chunk you know that's that's all about the the, the blue sky thinking and what they were up to in the first place and and uh, where they were coming from. And the stuff that, about the Death Troopers is really interesting. I don't know if you you read it, Jimmy, but they were talking about the possibility of them actually being literally like kind of zombie troopers. They were actually sort of chatting that maybe at one point they might be um, kind of, you know, uh, troopers that, where the top of the head is missing and you could actually see inside the helmet that they have no brain. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's not it's not really that visible from any of the concept work but like just you know originally they were going to be like these kind of cyborg troopers that were kind of part part man part machine that were, that were virtually kind of you know remote control kind of drones for krennic so that that aspect i thought was really kind of exciting and very very dark for a star wars movie you know i mean that there aren't a lot of cyborgs in there are there apart from like lobot and things like things like that but you know like just characters that you kind of think they, they may maybe have like uh, they wear something cybernetic but the idea of of having half the head replaced you know <laughs> it's a bit bit crazy and i guess that maybe that's if that's still a part of their concept i don't know if that sort of turns up in the in the uh, visual guide as part of the final concept but I, I was wondering about the noises that they make you know the fact that they kind of bark and make these strange noises that aren't like like regular trooper speak, you know. Yeah. Hey, you know, not- speaking of like having their brains removed, there is uh there is something not related to the death trooper, but it's uh, a Jetta uh civilian. Oh, this is in the uh, ultimate visual guide. They're called the decraniated. The decraniated. And you know, from behind it like he had no head because he didn't have a head. No, it's yeah. this it's this woman. She appears yeah. to be a servant and um yeah yeah i know which one you mean later on there's a second character as well that's also decraniated jimmy decraniated so the top of their skull is completely missing it's flattened out yeah there's some sort of um cybernetic device in place of where their eyes and ears would be sort of wrapping around their their half of a head and then just a normal nose and mouth and uh, the decraniated are if you look uh, up 
on page 77, Jimmy, at the bottom, there's a second character called Caton Bog. Yes. I had decraniated. Yes. And, and the word is, is that, uh, that these uh, decraniated people and uh, that headless guy, uh, mm-hmm. they are victims of the, um, the mad uh, surgical skills of Dr. Evazan. Oh, okay. Yeah, who, who went by the name Rufu on, uh-huh. on the planet Jetta, which is really interesting because Rufu is the name that Dr. Evazan was uh, called in the Star Wars radio drama. Oh, was it? Yeah, Rufu. Interesting. I've always thought he, he doesn't seem like a doctor to me. No, he you sure know. doesn't. He sure doesn't. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you watch yourself. You just think, like, crikey. Like, it, it doesn't seem like house or you know <laughs> yeah right people are wondering how he's on the two of them evazan and walrus man are on jetta and then yeah. then right after they're on tatooine but i mean uh, that makes all the sense in the world to me because they yeah. have the death sentence on 12 systems yeah which means we're gonna see him show up in 10 more movies <laughs> well he's probably on call he's got a beeper you know and they, and they call him <laughs> so he has to go there right away and uh, yeah so he's going to appearances by Walrus Man and Dr. Evazan are going to be like the Star Wars equivalent of the Stan Lee cameo yeah. in Marvel films you can always count on it I always just think like can you imagine if like you know you went to the doctors and, and Dr. what's his name Evazan I always called him Dr. Evazan yeah, if Evazan turned up, you'd be like, no, you're all right, I'm fine, I'm feeling much better. It's okay, like, I can, yeah, I'll come back. Yeah, he comes walking <laughs> in, you know. So, uh, what appears to be the problem? <laughs> oh, but, yeah. hey, speaking of which, I did find the uh, excerpt. Um, this was kind of a Gareth Edwards idea, where there would be a middle version of uh, these troopers, something between human and droid, soldier and droid. Yeah, yeah. And they would work with... Um, but they would be a mix of organic and mechanical. Yeah. Gareth Edwards wanted to make it clear through the design to show that the brain was gone by giving them helmets that no human could actually wear. Yeah. yeah. So, so. decraniated. Yeah. Decraniated troopers. The first one I was looking at, I was like, decraniated? That seems like a Star Trek kind of thing. But um, it seems like a kind of David Lynch's Dune kind of thing, oh, doesn't it? Really, that's what I was thinking. Crazy. Very dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so I was good. I was happy right from the off of this book because the, the the very first little kind of interview with Gareth, he was talking about the fact that when he moved out from London out to San Francisco to to start working on um, Rogue One, he only took one thing with him, and it was the book that I designed, the the Macquarie book that that I did with Stan. So that was that was nice to hear that he, you know we had a little bit of an influence there, and in that he, he took our book out with him when he went out to the Presidio. So wow. that book is so huge, he probably needs separate luggage just to. <laughs> it get cost it him out a bit there. pounds or something. So that was that was kind of cool. That is but, one uh, of the greatest books ever. If you're looking for it, uh, the the title of the uh, book is just the art of Ralph Macquarie. Yeah, the art of Ralph Macquarie can be found at dreamsandvisionspress dot com. Dreams and Visions Press. Dot com and if you uh, go there to purchase it, let them know that Rebel Force Radio sent you. So, for sure. So just flipping through the book, you know, um, getting into some familiar territory here with Yavin Base and some designs for Jin Urso. Mm. 
interesting some of these. You know what I, I did last night was I flipped through the art of the Force Awakens book to see if any designs that didn't make it into the Force Awakens ended up in Rogue One. And there was really nothing that jumped out at me, but I just thought there would be a, a good chance of that happening because both films were in production at the same time. But, um, you know, some of these Jen Erso concepts uh, sort of feel like Ray a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing things. But uh, <laughs> Like, she, she definitely, you know, she has a stronger kind of, she has a, a very different feel. I mean, like, you know, I always think that Ray kind of almost feels like a female Luke and, and Jin, I always assumed was going to be kind of like a bit of a female hand type, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. but that was just me kind of oversimplifying it before you kind of actually got to know the characters. But, uh, but artistically, I'd say there's a little bit of that going on, you know, I kind of feel like a lot of the costumes in, in, uh, in Rogue One have very much going to feel like they, they came out of Hans wardrobe, you know, but, uh, but I mean, the, the, the thing that amazed me about this book was just how informative it was outside of the art too. You know, I mean, like, you know, you know, I, I knew it was going to eat up every picture in the book, but at the same time, there's this stuff in here that, you know, there's information in here that, that we've not been getting elsewhere. You know, we've all been speculating about what the pickups were and, and what was and stuff like that. And they actually talk about it quite a lot in here. And it seems as though the, the pickups were mostly kind of introductory so although there are all these rumors about maybe there's going to be a four hour version of this movie because, you know, we've all heard these stories about half the movie getting reshot or something. Um, you know, it's clear that that wasn't really the case that, that, you know, a lot of the movie just, you know, was not complete yet when when it came to the kind of point where they were figuring out what they were going to do for the pickups. And a lot of the stuff that that that, that kind of rocked the boat, if you like, was the fact that they wanted to shoot introductions to all the characters. So it sounds like a large part of the, the, the pickups were things like Bodhi's intro and, and Jin's intro as an adult, you know, when she escapes from the, the, the truck and what have you. And that whole scene with Cassie and his spy and all that. So all the, all the kind of adult introductions at the start of the movie. And then that would have a role on effect because whatever they kind of did in those opening scenes would suddenly kind of, you know, change things slightly knocking on. So all of a sudden they've got to change stuff that they've already filmed because, you know, they've established new things about the character in these, in these kind of like earlier sequences. So that was kind of cool to find out, you know, the reality of all that sort of situation and kind of go, okay, I get it. You know, that they just kind of felt like it was maybe a bit of a start. They're saying that because they went from the, the, section where it's it's basically Jin as a kid up front and then you were going to get the credit sequence and it was going to cut into the into the sequence much further down the line where it's essentially kind of like let's get straight to the rebellion and lots of meetings and things like that that it felt like a kind of a bit of a start and so that that was the main reason for all the reshoots was just they felt like there was they needed a lot more room up front to just kind of build the characters because if they got into the story too quickly you know although it seems like they were pretty keen to kind of turn it into return of the jedi and have half the movie as a battle which which really is what we got you know they kind of in the initial kind of preparation they kind of got that battle in there a little bit too soon so so you know i think it sounds like three quarters of the movie would have been the final battle so uh yeah, that was that was the deal there. But uh, yeah, I think you're right about the designs of you know not really translating that that literally from stuff in Force Awakens, Jimmy. And I think a large part of that is just purely because it's a different era and we've got a different direction of the wheel. You know, I mean, I, it was interesting to sort of like read the difference in approaches. I mean, it sounds like Gareth was very much about. Uh, the, there's a, a, a famous kind of interview with uh, um, Orson Welles where he talks about, you know, uh, sorry. Um, uh, Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. talks about uh, 
his his approach to making kind of like movies and one of the things he used to do was he would he would literally try and find like six or seven moments that he just thought visually would be really kind of you know would really linger with people and would really you know sort of be memorable and it sounds like gareth adopted a similar approach to this where he was like okay what can we design that's going to be a really kind of you know epic moment what's going to be an epic thing to look at what's going to be you know uh, iconic and memorable and and you know and so i think the art started super fast as it always does with stars but i think it was hugely instrumental in in the way the story panned out judging from from the book you can tell just from reading it that like oh yeah it was it was all over the map like you know that the whole kind of relationship between galen and and Krennic and stuff really transformed over time and and uh, and Jin's importance that you can tell that changed over time as well i don't think she was quite as central as she ended up i think initially it was much more of a kind of you know, like everybody was was as significant, but now it feels like you know, definitely feels like Jin's story, doesn't it? Yeah, well, and and that's good. I think that's important. You have that yeah. strong story thread going on. It's it's the Ursos storyline, really. If you want to uh, boil it all down, I mean, Jin is yeah. is picking up uh, a responsibility that her father, uh, you know basically laid the foundation for her to assume that responsibility. And, and, you know, there was a lot of things done to, to make her character much more likable. Um, you know, like for, for example, there's a sequence on Jetta and I, I, I can't tell you for a fact that this was part of the pickups or if this is part of the original shooting script, but with the little girl who's standing in the middle of all the violence and warfare and she's just crying. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to She can't run. So Jin bolts out, grabs the child and is able to present the, the child to uh, the mother unharmed. And um, that is one of these rules of screen writing, and, and you'll find this in, in a lot of, especially Disney films, they ascribe, like, there's this, on the inside of, you know, the industry among screenwriters, there's like 15 rules that they use yeah. to shape a character and make a character sympathetic and likable and stuff. And one of those rules is called Save the Cat. There was a book written by this guy, <laughs> yeah, this guy named Blake Snyder called Save the Cat. And um, it's, it's about all of these screenwriting rules. And um, Save the Cat essentially is you put a defenseless person in harm's way or a cat, for example, <laughs> and, you know, your, your character, your, your protagonist will, will save the cat essentially from, from danger. And so immediately the audience makes that connection with the protagonist and is able to, to like them because they see where their heart is. They're willing to put themselves in harm's way to save the cat. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and that's your save the cat moment in, um, in Rogue One for Jen Urso. And that immediately lends her credibility to the audience as far as her, her morality goes, as far as what sort of person she is in her heart and everything. So um, I like that. You know what? That's something I probably want to break down. This whole film, based on all of those screenwriting rules, um, I'm, uh, that, that will take a little bit of research, but I'm actually going to work on that a little bit. Maybe for next influences, we can talk about Save the Cat and all those screenwriting rules and see how they came into play with Rogue mm -hmm. One. I mean, it's interesting the way that, you know, they're kind of writing, you kind of feel as though sometimes they spotted stuff because artistically they were kind of exploring it. You know, like there's a little piece where they're talking about odd couples in, in Star Wars and the fact that you've, you've always got like R2 and 3PO or Han and Chewie 
you know, that there's always those kind of couples. And that I think that visually it started to be very noticeable in the artwork that you didn't really have that kind of a relationship. You know, like you can tell that somebody kind of at some point went like, we need, we need an odd couple visually, you know? And so they started experimenting with Chirrut and Blaze, a uh, base and, and, and exploring all kinds of looks with them would make them more kind of clearly an odd couple, you know? And it looks as though at one point they were even considering giving Chirrut blue eyes just because they thought it would be really unusual to have like a Chinese actor with blue eyes. It would really stand out. So I don't know if that, that came first or if they'd already kind of decided he was going to be blind or whatever. But I think they were just looking for something that was going to make him super Star Warsy without just like handing him a, uh, a lightsaber. You know, like what can we do that makes him mm-hmm. distinctive and unusual, you know. But uh, If this yeah. was Star Trek, they would give him a bumpy forehead. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe some there's, antenna there's some fun stuff in there too that i, that I had to laugh at they, they were talking about like um the, the in a section that they, they basically explore all the different planets as you go through the book and and they're talking about Jeddah and the design of Jeddah. and they were saying that one of the things they referenced to that was paris after world war ii you know during the, the bomb the blitz and and all that and i can kind of see that coming through but what's interesting for me is that the reason why that's kind of in there and and you know they're obviously kind of thinking that way about star wars is that back back in the you know when they were designing the original star wars movies the a guy guy called uh, an artist called enki bailau who is a amazing artist whose work used to appear in heavy metal he was actually brought up in paris post the blitz so so his artwork was a huge influence on on you know aspects of the original star wars design uh, and uh, so inadvertently, they're kind of ticking a Star Wars box, you know, that maybe they don't necessarily understand that that's where it's coming from. Is actually because Bilal lived through that, you know, so it's, it's, it is a part of the Star Wars look. But that's, that's kind of why it's because, like, this guy actually was a part of that. And a lot of his artwork, it, it kind of entails things like, um, you know, like a, a really lush, opulent hotel, but, like, all the stairs are smashed up and all the tiles are broken on the wall and that kind of thing, you know. So I know, I know that Joe was constantly pushing to put a little bit of that uh, that in the in his sketches. You know, every now and again, you see in the background there'd be some some beggar in the wall. There'd be, you know, the tiles would be falling off and there'd be graffiti and things like that. You know, and that was that was something Joe was really kind of keen to put in there. So it's it's nice to kind of feel that that influence coming through, kind of almost triple and. You know, it's 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 cool. It was nice to see all the they've moved away from Orabesh quite a bit. There's there's all kinds of kind of like alien glyphs in there. And if you look back at the original Star Wars, there's actually not that much Orabesh in there. No. But it, no. it seems to have become like the norm for everything now in Star Wars that they slap Orabesh on it. You know, which which I, I get a little tired of that because I kind of feel like the original Star Wars was like much more varied and had had much more you know variety in terms of, of writing. But this kind of feels like a real like lean back in that direction. There's, there's writing all over the place that makes no sense to us because it's not a font we've seen before. You know, so. Yeah. You know, the last time I recall seeing a unique alphabet presented mm. in Star Wars is back uh, Phantom Menace. The Naboo had an alphabet that was sort of based on yeah. circles and ovals and lines. Yes. I mean, there, there are heaps in there. I mean, if you look closely, there's a Sith font, there's a there's a Mandalorian font, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different fonts. But Orabesh just tend to kind of come to the front, you know. Yeah. So, well, especially when they're on a desert planet or something like that, you know. Yeah, my, my 14-year-old discovered Orabesh, and uh, he has a translation key 
yeah. tacked to his wall by his computer. So I mean, he's, I'm sure he's sending out some covert <laughs> messages to uh, his buddies in the eighth grade. Um, what's cool about Jetta is, as you're talking about, I'm flipping through some of these concept images. And the mesa that the city sits on is, uh, is very uh, similar to what we see in the final film based on some of this concept imagery. But what I find really interesting is that in some cases, we're looking at it from a different side, and it has yeah. been confirmed that the the tallest structure that you see it's it's pretty much on the um, on the left side of that mesa. If you look at it from another angle, it makes up the entire the entire structure is actually the the Kyber Temple itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see that? Huge. Yeah, yeah, I know. So if you look yeah. at page 100, 101, 102, 103, you'll see all of that where it's actually like the entire mesa is yeah. the actual Kyber temple itself. It does throw up so many questions, doesn't it, when you look at that? Because you do kind of think like we've just got this little glimpse of, of you know, the Jedi as a religious or the force as a religious kind of thing, you know, and it's it's when you look at that, you, you just kind of feel like, Okay, well, this thing's obviously been around for ages, you know. So uh, the prequel, the prequels kind of gave us all that impression that, like, Coruscant was kind of the hub, and and I don't know. I mean, uh, you probably felt the same way, Jimmy. I felt like it was like ninety percent of the Jedi movement, if you like, would be, you know, in and around that temple. That that was that home. That's where they all went back. But you look at this, and you kind of think. This place looks as big, if not bigger, than the Jedi Temple in terms of scope and stuff like that. And you think, like, well, if this is just for kind of worshippers of the Force, if you like, and it looks like it's been around for a long time, like, you know, what exactly is out there? I mean, are there, you know, lots more temples like this? You know, was the Jedi movement kind of, like, way bigger than just those guys in the Temple on Coruscant? Was there, were, were there more people out there that were kind of... Were the Jedi out there that never kind of went back because they were so far out? Or, yeah, I mean, it just it throws up all kinds of questions for me where I'm just looking at this kind of thinking that suggests a world that we haven't really had much of a glimpse of, you or, know? You know, maybe there wasn't any crossover at all between the Guardians of the Wills and the Jedi. Because, I mean, look at it, look at real world religion. You know, a lot of people worship God, let's just say, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's it's not like those religions cross over, like you yeah. know Catholicism doesn't cross over with Judaism and, and and all that. So, but it seems like everyone is sort of worshiping the same God, you know, when you boil it all down. But there's no crossover in the religion, so that could be the case in the Star Wars universe, where the Guardians of the Wills and the Jedi, maybe the Jedi are turned off by the guardians of the wills. Maybe they, they consider what those guys are doing is, is not the right way, or maybe they consider them to be pretenders or just yeah. not like them because they're not uh, necessarily divine, you know, a, trained on how to use the force. I mean, I, I, you know, it make, that makes me think of like in, in, you know, in England, we're such a small Island, you know, when, when we were invaded, you know, we, we were still pretty much, you know, well, Back in medieval times, we were always getting invaded every other week, it seems. You know, like, we we were quite a primitive kind of culture, and there was still, like, quite a lot of tree worshipping going on, you know, and, and uh, people kind of turn up at standing stones and things like that, you know. And, and uh, when kind of more orthodox religion kind of was brought into England, 
a lot of these sort of stone circles were demolished and a church was built in the same site to keep the people kind of coming back to the sacred place rather than a specific, you know, monument or whatever. And uh, that that was a way that, you know, a lot of, you know, religions like kind of um, uh, brought in people from outside of their faith, you know, uh, over here. So for me, it's almost like that. You kind of think like, well, which is the most ancient? Ancient is like, is like, the Jedi that we see like on Coruscant, are they, are they kind of like the Orthodox version of, a <laughs> right. no, I mean, that's fair. That's a fair thing to ask. Or is it backwards? Is it the other way around? You know, is this like a really primitive like misinterpretation of something that's, that's actually more kind of, you know, uh, that's different to it. You know, it's, yeah, it throws up all kinds of questions, but I like, I like the fact that it's really graying things, you know, cause Star Wars for all it's, or for all its strengths, you know, a big part of its appeal is the fact that it's very black and white. At least the, you know, the, the earlier movies were very, very much black and white, you know, yeah. this is an, it's kind of graying in the territory where you can think, well, anything goes now. I mean, who knows, you know, what kind of characters might be out there that are, uh, you know, that have the powers of the Jedi, but aren't called a Jedi or, you know, have, have, you know, um, I mean, it's a big universe, so who knows who's out there that, you know, is exactly like a Jedi but doesn't even know what a Jedi is. You know, it's 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 all possible now, isn't it? You're just going to think anything goes. But I, I found, like, a lot of the designs that you see in here that are uh, for just kind of the, the average kind of Jedi, you know, uh, background characters that are wandering around. You know those guys that are kind of – I think they've actually got a name in in, um, in the uh, visual guide, but they actually look like kind of like really primitive kind of canvas versions of the of the Royal Guards. You know, it's what I mean. kind of got a box for a head. Yes, they're uh, red. They have the red caftan. They, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, hold on. Let me pull up their uh, their page here. Oh, those guys are interesting. Now, see, I would love an action figure of that just to have hanging around, you know. <laughs> hint, hint, Hasbro. Um, yeah. Something tells me with, with this film we're primarily only going to be getting the, uh, the main characters. Here we go. The Jetta Pilgrims. The Jetta Pilgrims. Yeah. Um Tosh it, is the main guy, isn't he? He's the one that I'm talking about. Yeah, very primitive looking um Imperial Guard, essentially, mm. is what he looks like. And uh but because that, the, the color is the same, but most notably the eyepiece is the same. Yeah, yeah, right. And there's a blue guy too that looks like like the other ones. But I mean I the, the what's intriguing to me about that is you look at it and you kinda go well, that, that's very suggestive of history, which I was always great at doing that, like kind of giving you giving you a little bit of, you know, a connection where you just kind of got to guess, where, you know, what led to what. But this this to me is, makes me kind of wonder, like, you know, is there actually a connection between these guys and the and the Royal Guard? You know, was there actually, you know, were, the, were those guys kind of pulled from the ranks of these Jedi pilgrims or, you know, were they were they Jedi pilgrims gone bad or something? You know, that's that's all very intriguing because the royal red, I mean, normally the red thing is very indicative of like the emperor and, you know, imperial stuff. But here are these guys hanging around a, you know, a Jedi temple, essentially, you know, that you think like that's that's well, a, a, a force temple, you know, so it's 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 interesting. But then I guess they could be like they could be people that are kind of saying, you know, this is all a false prophet, you know, believing what we're saying. So for all you know, they could be dead against the whole kind of, you know. Uh, wills guys you know we we don't know you know it could be contested territory or something like a lot of a lot of uh holy lands these days you know who knows what's what's going on between these guys but yeah really um paints an interesting picture i think all the designs are really you know there's a lot of really intriguing and interesting designs in this movie that might just throw up questions and it's good when it does that you know you kind of feel like you're experiencing a real place full of color and variation it's yeah love it i would so like much. to i would like to think 
that Palpatine recruited his royal guards from yeah. these these Jedha pilgrims. Right, that's what I think. I would like to think that because um, Pablo knows. <laughs> they, it's a, you know they they believe in the force they speak of the powers of the force and it seems like they're always searching for answers to their deepest questions um, they may not exhibit control and manipulation of the mystical energy field but they do speak of its power and of its ability to shape and influence the destinies of individuals and history so these guys they get the force but they they don't necessarily know how to control it, so they mm. you know. But I mean, maybe they do train as warriors. Maybe they're like warrior monks, and they they have been then further trained by Palpatine. Mm. So I'd like yeah. to think that. I'd like to think that. And I, I think- know that there's probably tweets out there uh, saying no, <laughs> that's not true. But I don't care. I, I that's what I'd like to think. So that's what I'm Something- thinking. Off a slight tangent, Jimmy, I think there was something that tripped over in that section of the book where they were talking about the idea that that I thought it was a quite a sweet, like poetical kind of notion. But they were saying that that in the original Star Wars, Luke is essentially, you know, living in a, a place of calm and solitude and and homeliness. But he's dreaming of adventure and warfare. He's dreaming of being out amongst it, you know, being a part of something more to him significant and important, you know, whereas, whereas Jin in this is, is kind of like born into war, you know, and, and looking for the opposite. She's looking to get out of it and looking to be back on the homestead and looking back for normality, looking back to the hearth and family and stuff like that. So she's almost like a mirror image of Luke, yeah. which you thought that was a sweet, I don't think that was immediately obvious because you do see a little bit of her as a kid where she's living a very similar lifestyle to Luke. But, you know, in the, the main body of the story, that's what they're getting at, is that, you know, Jin is, is looking for a return to comfort rather than uh, stick herself in a fighter and, and uh, fight the good fight, you know? In some early conversations I had about the film, I uh, I noted that. But I I, placed, I, I I drew the parallel between Galen Urso and Luke Skywalker using the farm as their connective tissue. And I said, oh. well, you know, Luke wants to get off the farm to be a bigger part of the galactic picture while Galen is hiding out on the farm to avoid <laughs> being a bigger part of the galactic picture. And mm-hmm. I thought that was just kind of an interesting, um, you know, contrast in, mm-hmm. uh, between the two of them while still providing a, a solid parallel in their uh, status in the universe. While we're talking farms, I mean, I thought, I thought something that was interesting was like, you know, when, uh, you know, and I initially saw concepts of, of the like moisture evaporators, you know, all the, by now, most old signs know what a moisture evaporator is, but so those you know uh, metal towers everywhere on on the Luke's homestead. But you know, seeing those in a in a kind of what appeared to be quite a verdant, wet landscape, you know, to me was a bit like, oh, okay. Uh, I'm not quite sure we need why we need a moisture evaporator in a place that's chucking it down with rain. But it's nice in the in the uh, in the visual guide, it's talking about that aspect of things and sort of explaining that the the basically the water that falls on on the planet is is basically sour tasting and not not good it's 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 shaky it's got all kinds of stuff in it that's not good for you and it's basically a problem so it needs to be processed yeah these towers are used to do that so it's it's a little bit of retconning but you know that's that's the logic behind it is the idea that it's you know 
It's that, and I guess it's also about it being localized. Because when you see it in the movie, it's it's like most of the place looks black, you know, and and barren. And it's only really around the farm that you kind of see the like, huge green areas. Even though I know the location is green all over the place, but I think in the actual movie itself, most of the green is is like right up and close to the farm, isn't it? So, yeah, but. yeah. I mean, it's an amazing looking um, mm. uh, location with the black sand. And then, mm. and then, as they approach the green, um, Iceland, wasn't it? Wasn't it Iceland? Yes, like yes, yeah. it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, they talk about that in the book. Yeah, it's a bit where they were chatting about like they were because there were two different approaches for the design of the, the homestead, and one was much more verdant and green, and it almost looked like the um, the the earlier versions of Antoine, you know, that we saw in the game and stuff right. like that. You know, kind of like a loop shaped base, if you like, sitting on a kind of a field of grass. No, and, and then when they went out to the location, there was just something that wasn't working about it. It almost felt, felt too comfortable. And, uh, you know, and the weather, I think the weather wasn't right either. And they just kind of thought, we can't really shoot it here. And so they went to the second choice, which was the kind of big black arid fields, you know. And I think that, that was probably they were, they were trying to make it feel initially like a little bit more homely and like a place that you wouldn't get, want to get dragged away from. But, uh, but for me, it kind of worked as this kind of thing like – like even though it's a place that you know Galen and his family don't don't want to leave, you kind of it, it feels more in keeping with the rest of the movie. I think if it had been all happy and green, it would have seemed very odd in such a dark film, you know. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I we, love- we've talked about Krennic's approach to the farm and the fact that he parks about two miles away. Yeah. Why does he do that? What, what does he do? Is this like some big, you know, procession to be, you know, to uh, terrorize? Are they trying to grandstand? But I, I propose this, and I'm looking through the uh, visual guide to see if there's any indication that this could be the truth. But, you know, I think uh, Galen Urso, being a guy who certainly knows about uh, power and energy distribution and understands how all that works, I believe that he had constructed some sort of force field around the farm to prevent it from any aerial attack. And yep. so so the Empire, uh, Krennic and the Death Troopers, they had to park on the uh, other side of that shield. You could still walk through, but yeah, it, would, it would prevent any sort of uh, uh, um, bombardment from above. And I'm looking through the visual guide right now for any indication of that, and I don't see it. So yeah, I'm, I'm rolling with it, folks. I'm rolling with it. It makes sense to me. I think the only other thing I was thinking of was he was avoiding going back too soon. Like, so was obviously maybe he's, he's been invited to a party or something he doesn't want to go to, or he's just saying, how can we prolong this a bit? It's going to be over in five minutes, you know. Let's uh, let's, let's park a bit further away. Yeah, no, no rush, you know. Yeah, maybe yeah, he's got okay. to go back to some boring function that he doesn't want to go to, or, you know, he's got to go yeah. and have you know, Tarkin or something Tar- like that. Yeah, you know? something with Tarkin. Tarkin is a drip. He is so <laughs> boring to sit in there in that room with. <laughs> no, Tarkin. Tarkin's actually very exciting, I think. It's, he's a very exciting character. Nowhere to be found in the visual guide is the You're Grand right. Moff. He is not in here anywhere. I mean, that was uh, definitely something that they wanted to preserve for the film. And, and, and Leia, of course, is not in the visual guide at all either. Really surprised, was- though, for Tarkin having... The role that he had in the film, yeah, you would think it'd be in there some a little bit, but it was interesting to to read the like because I'm I'm familiar with Guy Henry from like we have a show over here called Holby City that's like a, a hospital right. show. And, yes, I've and I've and actually he, heard of it. Yeah, you look at him in that, and it's um, 
uh, he, he's one of those characters. That he just kind of—he really does have a lot of the talk, talkings about him, even without him trying. Like he naturally goes there. You know, he's kind of like this imposing, you know, giant kind of, you know, uh, guy. And he's got that—he's got that quality about him in the in the fa- facially and stuff like that. But it was—it was interesting to me. I didn't realize he played Sherlock Holmes like in a. Well, you know the the movie, the young Sherlock Holmes movie that they did. That I think it was an Amblin film, wasn't it? Bef- before that, they they actually did a TV show over here that was like a, a mini series all about the young Sherlock Holmes, and they, they had him play Sherlock in that. And he that was apparently was the first time he went to the Cushing place because he was referencing early kind of Peter Cushing um, playing Holmes. So apparently, when he was when he was in his twenties and playing sherlock guy henry was impersonating cushing back then so i think that's that's mm. what kind of brought him onto the radar that he could do that you know cool cool so a weird bit of truth but uh yeah it's it's surprising how much he looks like him i mean even because i mean nobody has a face like cushing but he, he really does have a lot of the mannerisms and stuff just naturally i think so and he, he trills those r's just right yeah, he does. He does. He's definitely got the pitch and everything just right as well. Yeah. Today we'll see the end of the rebellion. <laughs> whoa, whoa, guy, guy. Let's just take it down just a notch, okay? Okay, let's <laughs> shoot it again. Rebellion. He's like doing a big wind-up. Oh, come on, guy. Guy. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, how yeah. Cushing wanted it. <laughs> Fantastic, though. Oh, why am I putting the book down? We're still talking. Um, how about the evolution of the design of K2SO? Now, he originally was supposed to be based on an Imperial Protocol droid, uh, an RA7 droid that we see, uh, a.k.a. a Death Star droid that we see mm. in The New Hope. Let me find that page where they're uh, developing the look of K2SO. This one is a huge book, folks. It really is a massive book. It's it's. It's wonderful, though. It's really, really wonderful. Oh, yeah, sure, you know, it's massive. Um, What's interesting to me as a designer is to look at this and kind of, you know, I can tell the age of the designer by the art. You know, quite often I'm looking at it kind of going, yeah, your references are way contemporary. There's there's a few that are kind of, there's a few like early K2s that you kind of go, that looks like something out of um, uh, AI or something like that, you know, or um, uh, what's it called? Uh, iRobot, mm-hmm. it's got that kind of feel to it, and then you get, and then gradually you kind of get stuff that's kind of feel, has more of a Macquarie feel, you know. But uh, yeah, real, real mixture of of stuff. A gorgeous design, gorgeous design. I do love it. It's one of those things where I always feel that you know this stuff. I mean, obviously I have a huge Macquarie bias, but um, and they they do need to spin it out a little bit in certain directions just to keep it interesting. You know, they can't always you know kind of lean on the same handful of designs but you know i I feel like k2 is one of those designs that that you know it feels like something that ralph came up with and that's the nicest compliment i can pay anybody's design work you know i look at k2 and i kind of go yeah that's absolutely something that ralph originated and then when you go back and look at his original concepts it's not you know but it it sure feels like it because it's a hybrid of of you know little bits of ralphy stuff and then and then like actually like veer's armor from the empire strikes back and stuff like that is there's a little bit in that in there you know so uh but yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful character to look at because and quite a challenge because you know here, here we have a character that's meant to be able to be intimidating and threatening, you know, and, and almost like the Terminator in how fast he can kind of get you, you know. And then at the same time, he needs to be he needs to be quite sympathetic and you need to relate to him and care for him, 
you know, in the same way that you would Chewbacca, you know. So um, for me, I, I think he really works as a sidekick like Chewie did. You know, he's, he's got that mixture of threatening and adorable at the same time. A lot of it comes out of the eye movement. I was inspired to, to pull that, you know, play in the eyes where it can kind of, his eyes tilt and move, you know, unlike, unlike 3PO's that are just, you know, lights. But um, yeah, fantastic character. And it was nice to see the other K2's walking by too. And they almost sounded more like a, kind of like a probot or something, didn't they, Jimmy? You know, when they were down the base. Yeah, you know, I, I only recall seeing a couple of them. There was the one that uh, Jen shot on Jetta, and uh, yep. th- that thing didn't even have time to make a sound. And then the uh, one that walks by them yeah. after they've infiltrated the uh, the Citadel on Scarif. Um, boy, you say he sounds like a probot, huh? I'm going to have to double-check him. Now, they show him. I love the, the way Gareth shot that because you're there with them as you're walking and then that big, long, lanky K2 droid goes walking by and you just watch it go by sort of from the perspective of your like standing between Cassian and Jin. And then you see him walk by. And then later they show K2SO downloading information from that mm-hmm. droid's head. And I, yeah. so it's, it's, it's the same droid, the one that walks by them. Then they, they watch him and then they must have gone back and followed him. Get him. Yeah. I think actually, you know, thinking about it, it's probably more like the Death Star droid, you know, the big bug eyes. It's yeah. probably sound more like that. I think, you know, uh, kind of. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that, that scene for a start off because it shot Canary Wharf as well. I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's one of the handful of shots that remains of that station, you know, where it's like, yeah, that's, that's definitely Canary Wharf station with a giant robot walking through it. Fantastic. Yeah. I think we'll Very. end up seeing um, more of that stuff on the uh, Blu-ray when it eventually comes out. They're saying there's not actually that much stuff that, that we're going to get. I mean, it's it's our assumption, I think, well, my assumption was that there'd probably be like a good hour of material that we've not seen, you know. But it sounds like it's nothing like that. It's, it just sounds like, you know, they left a large portion of the movie unfilmed and then went back to it. You know, that's certainly the way it's beginning to, to sound to me. Oh, anyway. I've, I've heard the exact opposite. Really? Um, as a matter of fact, Ben yeah, Mendelsohn true. recently said that there are several scenes that were shot different ways with uh, different um, uh, sort of a rhythm, different sort of mood. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, I think there's enough to put out a completely different version of Rogue One because that's what they were working off of in the first place. I think that could be, you know, I mean, it all depends on how you kind of take that, Jimmy, because, I mean, like, you know, they're not necessarily talking about different, you know, different days. They could be talking about different pr- approaches between takes. I mean, if you, you know, George is pretty sharpish, you know, he's pretty much a sort of, you know, four or five take wonder, you know, Ridley Scott's more of a kind of one or two take wonder, you know, as opposed to Kubrick will, will have you there all, all day on one shot, you know? And for this, I think it was more a case of kind of like, he just wanted variety. So he had choice. So I think that what Ben's talking about out there is when they were filming, I think they just approach it 15 different ways when they were shooting rather than going back and back and back and reshooting things. So I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, what he means. I think he's just talking about they did a lot of takes and they put a lot of variety in the takes, Jimmy. You know what I mean? All right. Check so, this out. Check this mm. out. I hear what you're saying, but this is the exact <laughs> quote from Ben Mendelsohn. This is to Collider. He said, we did have multiple, multiple ways of going at any given scenario. We had multiple readings of it. So should they ever decide to, there would be a wealth of ways of approaching these different things. And I know from having seen sort of 
the critical kind of scenes throughout it, I know there's vastly different readings of it, at least four of those scenes, he says. Enormous differences within about 20 or 30 of the scenes. Mm. Cool. Enormously yeah. different renderings. I guess you could still take it either way, Jimmy, couldn't you? I guess we'll find out, won't we? I suppose down the road. They're being really open about what mm. went on behind the scenes. I've noticed lately um, there was sort of a, an internal embargo over mm. at Lucasfilm about uh, revealing too much about the making yeah. of Rogue One. But now they're talking openly about Tarkin and how yeah, that was all pulled off and the, the CGI makeup for Tarkin and all of that. And, and now yeah. I, I've noticed – and Gareth is that kind of guy too. He's laid back. He um, – doesn't he's not the type of guy to cover it up and create a, a a phony mystery around things. I think he's pretty honest, and uh, I think he's uh, not one who's going to really hold back on some of the behind the scenes things that went on. I just saw a new article today, or I, I think Empire Magazine has a big behind the scenes feature coming out soon. So Ooh. you want to keep your eyes open for that. There was a, there's a, a fun bit of this. I mean, one of the things that I love about these books is is just the insight you get into the their thinking when it when it comes to the artwork. You know, which we, we didn't used to get that in the art of Star Wars books. In fact, we the first one we didn't get anything at all. We just got the script. But in this one, you know, there's the stuff like it's talking about the tactical display displays and all the all the kind of user interfaces and computer displays that they've got in Rogue One. And uh, it mentions the fact that, like, back in when the original movies were made, of course, there really wasn't any CG in that film apart at the very end when you get that little, you know, the glimpse of the Death Star plans on, on uh, Yavin 4 and they're all sort of sitting there watching the, the trench in front of them. But other than that, all the other computer displays were, of course, hand-animated because they didn't have that option. And um, apparently a lot, of the, a lot of the computer displays that, that are in Rogue One are, in fact... Uh, or do in fact have a hand-drawn elements, so the, the you know because however perfectly you try and get that look down with a you know rotaring pen and a or an exacto knife or something, it's always going to be a little bit rough around the edges, and it's not definitely not going to look like regular CG. And part of kind of capturing that vintage look um, sufficiently so it would kind of buffer up against the original movie was to sort of do hand-drawn elements. So apparently a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you see in Rogue One that looks like straight up CG. Um, isn't just that. It's also got a lot of, you know, like just um, pen and paper going on. So so I think that's that's pretty cool because you would never guess it to look at it, I think. But it, all you know is it definitely feels like the old stuff. So, so you know, kudos to them for, for managing to pull it off. Wow. It, you know, really? It's just as simple as that, huh? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. That's very yeah. cool. Now, Paul, did you work on this film at all? No, I didn't. No, right. no, no. No, no, no. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, no, not this one. Uh, but uh, it, it would have been a great one to work on, wouldn't it? Would have been super cool. I, 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 I kind of feel as though there's a lot of stuff in this that that you know feels right up my street in terms of kind of uh, you know, obviously, like you can tell that 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 Gauss a huge fan of Ralph, and you can tell that a lot of his choices were made on you know like what looks the most like the OT, but. Um, you know, because you know he needed to be that way with it buffering right up against um, the original Star Wars. But there, are, there are so many kind of good designs in this book that you kind of think like that would have looked fantastic in the prequels. You know, there's a lot of fighter designs where I kind of like I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the U-wing. I know everybody loves it now. I know you're crazy about it, aren't you, Jimmy? You dig it, right? Oh my god, yes. 
but I, I'm not I'm not really a big fan of it. But I'll, but I'll, like there are so many designs in here that are just fantastic. Where I'm like, wow, if that was a Ewing. I'd be crazy for it. The, the Ewing, I, I think, is a, a pretty cool design. You know, and I like its functionality as a ship. I think yeah. uh, it, it works for me. But you just can't get over those skinny wings, can you? No, it's a, it's a personal thing, you know. I mean, but I, there are so many good designs in this book where you kind of go, they definitely have the right team to do this. Yeah. You know, it's got a real nice, nice feel to it. Some of it is so literal. I mean, the, the only thing, you know, that, that really differentiates, um, I mean, the, the whole process for designing a movie these days is so different from how it was back in Ralph's day. And, and uh, you know, the, the expectation, the turnaround is just insane. I mean, to give you some idea, I mean, like, um, but back in the seventies, Ralph would would you know would do you know probably twenty production illustrations, and most of his stuff would just be pencil sketches and pen sketches. Right. right. Um, so like ninety percent of his design work was done on paper with a pen, pretty rapidly. You know, but when it came to sort of doing final final production illustrations, it would take anything between two to sort of six days to finish a single production illustration. Nowadays, it's quite normal. I mean, you know, for somebody like me to have to pull together two or three illustrations in a day. Mm. Uh, so that necessitates a very kind of like photographic approach. There's a lot of kind of pulling in images and stuff like that. But what, what I always say is if you're not very careful, you know, a lot of the design work is done by the photographs that you pull in, you know, it's, and, and you don't want it to look to, to sort of derive from, from the source material. So, you know, you bring in lots of photographs and piecing them all together and painting over it. You know, if you're not very careful, you kind of, you're importing design work from, from somewhere else. But the, the good thing about a lot of the design work for Rogue One is that you kind of feel like they managed to maintain that old look even when they were kind of pulling in a lot of images, you know, they, they still managed to pull in that feel. And I think it's because, you know, they, they had a really kind of clear idea about what the old look is, you know, and I think with, with a lot of the prequel movies, they had the, the difficulty of, you know, like, right, we've got to create this world from scratch and it's not entirely like the old movies and it's something new. It's something, you know, artisan and different. And the same went for, for the force awakens. They're looking for something progressive and modern and, you know, 40 years on or whatever. But with rogue one, it was, it was clear that they're just going to go, we have to make this and, and show, you know, look at the original movies and, and, and aim for that. And I think, I think that, you know, so 90% of the design work, you kind of feel like the first sketch out of the gate was, was like right on the nose in terms of getting the right feel. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's always the thing that, you know, I always say to people that, you know, don't have a lot to do with art department stuff like that is, is that you think that you kind of get in the measure of a thing when you look at, um, one of these art of books and, and, you know, certainly nowadays we're getting thousands of Im- images in one of these books, but this is probably a 10th of the work that they did, you know, and they're, they're right. just kind of cherry picking the stuff that they, that they, they, they like and they want to share, you know, uh, but, but I mean, I just, I just can't imagine like the volume of work they had to do for this movie because it's so dense. I mean, it's just, it's nice to get a glimpse of it in here, you know, but you kind of feel like we, we need it. We need it in 10 volumes, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it does appear that this has a lot more going on in every inch of the screen. Yeah. When compared right. to The Force Awakens. Mm. Now, I made a statement saying that The Force Awakens doesn't have the rewatchability factor that Rogue One does. And that was no comment on the story or the characters or anything like that. Well, no, no, it's a very different film, isn't it? But of, course, but of course, I took crap for it. But that's <laughs> not what I'm saying. I mean, there's just more going on in Rogue One per, mm. per frame, per frame. Let's well, face it. Yeah, I mean, you kind of feel like, you know, I mean, 
it is oranges and apples, as, as people say. You know, I, I mean, I was crazy about Force Awakens when it came out. Still am. I loved it. Yes. Uh, and and it is all about. But for me, it's it's those moments where, you know, where Ray is is uh, messing about with Han in the cockpit and they're having a laugh and she's pulling parts of the Falcon off the wall and. It's those kind of moments, those inter- interactions, you know, that make it so charming and appealing and rewatchable. And it's the strong kind of character moments with, uh, you know, with Kylo and, and all those different things. But with this one, it very, you know, although although uh, Force Awakens had like its fair share of like visual kind of joy, you know, you, you know, watching the Falcon kind of kicking up sand and stuff as it's banking, you know, uh, all over the place through all the wrecks and stuff like that. You know, that was fantastic. But but this one for me just kind of felt like it was you know mostly about that kind of stuff you know it's mostly about immersing you in an environment and uh, a lot less about character. But then at the same time I kind of feel like that's unfair because you kind of think well you know I'm pl- plenty kind of you know connected to these characters and the actors were fantastic and they're, they're well developed and everything. But you just I don't know it's just yeah visually you kind of felt like the frame was busier and more full you know and that that was essentially it. It was almost like just the locations alone were enough to change this up. You know, like there were, there were almost no space battles in, or well, there weren't any space battles in force awakens. Were right. Right, right. I mean the, the raid on star killer base, but mm. I mean, yeah, you're um, not getting your classic dog fights with that no. particular raid. And, uh, in rogue one, you get that and so much more. It's, you have, you have all that. You have the strategy going on board, the master, ships you you have the uh the x-wings you have the the shield you have the tie fighters you have the star destroyers you have the ground battle going on the the attempt to to send the i mean there's just so much going on Mm. and it all comes together just so nicely in rogue one doesn't it it does i mean I, i think there you know obviously something this complex requires a lot of people and a lot of talent to make that happen but i mean i, I was very interested to find out that neil neil lamont was going to be the co-production designer just purely because like way back in the in the 80s he he worked on return of the jedi as a as a uh, art department assistant so he he was among that stuff like back in the 80s even though you know he had a much less of a role you know but so that 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 made you know i thought it was a very interesting choice to get to get neil involved in that way because um, since then he hasn't really done a lot of science fiction. He, he was in the Harry Potter movies and and uh, you know a few other bits and pieces of note. But but uh, you know, so I've got a feeling that Neil probably had a lot to do with you know how successful how successfully they pulled it off in practical terms. You know, because uh, that's really you know a large part of the production designer's job is to get everybody else like on the right page. You know, um, on the day. You know, whereas I'm sure that Doug's um, you know role as a production designer was much more kind of um, organizational and getting the designers on the right page initially you know uh-huh. whereas i think i think that i think that uh neil neil neil's responsibility was probably much more likely to be like you know on set at pinewood you know is this looking right you know so um at least that's my interpretation of it anyway I, that, that'd be my guess but uh yeah, yeah. i just sort of look perfect and uh yeah knowing what nitpicker i am it is uh that's quite an achievement <laughs> uh, i do know what a nitpicker you are sir i but, do uh, I always thought, you know, I love all these castle, um, all the castle stuff that obviously is kind of borrowed from Ralph's, you know, Vader castle designs that he did for Empire and stuff. It was, it was a fantastic moment in the film, and I absolutely was ready to kind of stand up and just scream with joy, you know, at seeing it. But uh, I always kind of felt as though, like when it came around to um, Revenge of the Sith, 
I thought that was where we were going to, like, Vader was going to be transformed. I kind of felt like that was the place where he'd get the armor for the first time, you know, on uh, Mustafar, uh, the castle. Yeah, you know why I thought that as well? Is because of the the Target exclusive action figure of the lava reflection Darth Vader action figure. I mean, I I thought for sure that was where he was going to uh, make his grand debut is on the banks of the lava banks of Mustafar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought they were going to do that whole poetry thing that, that uh, you know, George so often cites and have like, you know, Vader, like, like Luke was all about the blue and the ice, you know, like in the back to tank, you know, kind of recovering. I thought Vader was going to be about the red and the flames, you know, he was going to be in something really similar. And well, you, know. you do see concept art of uh, something very similar to what you're describing yeah. on uh, page 182 of the art of Rogue One. <laughs> yeah 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 it's in here for sure yeah i mean it's definitely where they were going with this one mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it's it's if you haven't picked this up like you got to pick it up i mean it's just so full of stuff that you, you kind of feel like might resonate too because you know when like we're all familiar with the fact that there were all these old concepts that kind of show up that that ralph did like you know sort of you know 40 40 years ago um but there's no doubt in my mind that some of this stuff is so good. It's, it's going to, it's going to turn up eventually. You know, there are fighter designs in here. There are kind of character designs and costume designs that you kind of feel like, you know, there's no way that's going to get abandoned forever, you know? So it, it does make me wonder where some of this stuff might end up, you know, cause they're already, you know, there have already been designs as I understand it, that we done for force awakens that did show up in this movie. I couldn't get into specifics, Jimmy, but I, I know that stuff did turn up. So it, it does make me wonder, you know, what, what's in this book that might show up in, Episode nine or ten or whatever. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Could be. We're going to go back to this castle, Jimmy. Do you think we'll get back there? I would like to see it. I would like to see Kylo Ren pay a visit, maybe uh, you know, to look deeper into his connection mm. to his grandfather and stuff. I'm looking at a lot of this concept art of Vader's lair right now, and man, this is some compelling stuff. A lot of back to tank Vader, or as they call it, the rejuvenation chamber. And, um, yeah. I mean, what's great about it is that, well, quite honestly, you just see more of it than you do in the movie here in the book. You actually see Vader being removed from the back to tank, yeah. which is wild. And, uh, yeah, I would love it if, if we go back to Vader's castle. And, um, my goodness, uh, man, I'm just blown away by this book. I, I got to stop the show now because I'm just going to be doing nothing but looking at the book now really uh, great to go through it with you paul um i still I, I i prefer taking a magnifying glass to the book actually because it helps me see a lot more detail in some of these smaller thumbnails and of course the font in the book is microscopic oh, so, no. i mean so um so yeah it's a good book to attack with a uh, a simple magnifying glass you can pick up at walgreens for 10 bucks or whatever Something I'd suggest to people too is like, you know, it's, it's, uh, there, you know, one of the things that's quite nice, I, I had to laugh when I read about, um, Gareth taking the, the Ralph book, the Art of Ralph book out to, uh, SF, because I saw quite a bunch of stuff turn up here that wasn't like Ralph's Star Wars design, but it was stuff that he did for other films. Oh. It was, there was, um, I think I mentioned to you before about the, you know, the, ins, ins, the, uh, Imperial installation on, is it, is it Edo or Edo? Yeah. Edo? Do, yeah. 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 I don't know how you pronounce it yet. Um, Ralph did some designs for, for Star Trek, the motion picture that were of, uh, Vulcan, 
and uh, there was a, like an insulation built into the rock and stuff, and it was all these tubes all kind of lined up like a bunch of cigar tubes at cylinders or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it very definitely looks just like the Imperial installation on, on Edo. Wow. Um, there's a bit of that. And then the, there's also like the some of the interiors that didn't make it into the movie for Vader's Cave were definitely inspired by um, uh, the... Do you remember the, was it the Ovians, the insects from Battlestar Galactica? Yes, yes. Ralph did some concepts for the interior of their hive that have these kind of like really kind of specific corridors and i'll share it with you jimmy so you can kind of share it with listeners but but uh there's a one one piece of concept art rafted in particular that was all these kind of insect caves that looked like you know they, they were toying with the idea of going there for vader's vader's castle on the inside because it's got a similar kind of shape so uh yeah there's there's um yeah i can just tell that they're pulling from you know they're just trying to find anything that's uh that's ralphie to add to the add to the you know list of cute cool looking things but uh Mm, yeah, that's amazing. You know, his uh, legacy does continue to contribute to Star Wars and uh, even stuff that he never even considered using for Star Wars is beginning to show up just because Ralph. I mean, that just speaks volumes about um, how his natural essence is such an important part of Star Wars that he can be creating artwork for something like Battlestar Galactica and it'll show up in Star Wars. Even though, I, you know, let's face it, a lot of people call Battlestar Galactica a Star Wars ripoff when it came out in the 70s. And, uh, and But, you know, Ralph did work on that show. Also, John Dykstra did the yep. special effects for that show. So there's an obvious Star Wars BSG connection, at least the classic BSG. I, I just, you know, I mean, looking at this stuff, it's 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 really nice to still after all these years, Jimmy, be able to look at an art of Star Wars book and be surprised by something new, you know. Um, and I think, and at the same time, feel kind of really comfortable and like it's familiar. And I think that's 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 the way we all felt when we went to see Rogue One. I think we all kind of went in there and went, "This is something really new and different," and yet so comfortable to wear and just feels like the Star Wars I was really hoping for. And it felt really kind of just super familiar and like a happy place to fall, you know. And um, I think I think you know right now I think everybody's on a real high from Rogue One and I think you know every time we get one of these art of books and every time we get you know one of these these visual guides you know where we get a chance to look at some some of the stuff up close and and you know in detail you know it makes me acknowledge more and more you know like the the skill that we've got involved working on these projects now is is really second to none in the industry these days and uh, they don't seem to have a shortage of, of talent involved in these movies on on any level do they i mean like the costumes you know the people who work in the costume departments the models the you name it it's just just nothing but talent like it like it's always been you know and it's easy to sort of like look back at the guys who, who worked on the original movies and kind of you know put them on a pedestal because they, they do kind of deserve it <laughs> But at the same time, there's a lot of really amazing people out there right now who are doing new stuff for Star Wars that's, that's, you know, deserves plenty of attention and plenty of respect. There's there's so much talent on display. And uh, I'm so glad that we can take these books home and kind of like have a really good look at it. You know, I mean, back in the 70s, it was so difficult to get a book about a movie like this, wasn't it? And it seems now that every every film that gets released, there's an art of book or a now behind the scenes book. But uh, nobody does it quite like the Star Wars posse. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, this is just... Yeah, these are just two two great additions to the bookshelf, and I can't w- believe we're going to have another two by December of next year. It's going to be uh, going to be crazy, isn't it? <laughs> but now, another two by December next year. Yeah, right. And I mean, imagine and like. Well, yeah, I guess you are right. Next year, I, I kind of forgot that we're in twenty seventeen. <laughs> yeah, you know. So and and 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I just can't. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when, when if we do get a live-action TV show eventually. You know, which it sounds like they're still toying with that idea. You know, and if we get further animated shows, you know, after Rebels and stuff like that, I mean, it's. it's I, I just feel like they're just getting going. You know, I think like for a lot of people, you know, I think when Rogue One came out, it, it took them by surprise in a way that that uh, Force Awakens didn't. I think we had that big build up. You know, we, we were expecting it. We all had high hopes for it. And, you know, boy, did it deliver. But with Rogue One, I think we, we almost, I think certainly a lot of people I knew, they kind of went in kind of feeling quite reserved about it just because of all the horror stories and, you know. But now I kind of just feel so overwhelmingly excited about what the future holds that it's just, I can barely contain myself, you know. And it's like, I, I can't imagine if, if they start to gear up, which it looks like is their intent. You know, if we start getting television every week too, it's like, oh, it'd just be like knee, like way deep, wading knee deep in uh, in Star Wars. It'd just, uh, yeah, couldn't be happier about that. <laughs> and we couldn't be happier to have access to you, Paul, <laughs> and your friendship and expertise on Star Wars. So the book is The Art of Rogue One, a Star Wars story written by Josh Cushions, with forewords by Doug Chang, Neil Lamont, and Gareth Edwards. Totally worth picking up, really expand your knowledge and appreciation of the story that is Rogue One and um, get to soak in a lot of cool artwork, too. You'll be uh, you'll find uh, time flies when you're looking through this book. <laughs> I'll sit down just to be like, oh, yeah, I want to check out that piece of uh, concept art from Jetta. And then the next thing you know, an hour and a half has gone by and I'm still staring at the same photo or the same um, artwork. It's amazing. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to get a hold of Paul Bateman, you can find him on Twitter at Paul RMQ. RMQ standing for Ralph McQuarrie. That's easy enough to remember. And uh, you can find us at Rebel Force Radio, and I'm at Jimmy Mac Radio. Voicemail, if you'd like to leave us a message, please do so. 708-320-1737. That's 708-3201-RFR. We will be featuring some uh, voicemail about Rogue One in upcoming episodes of Rebel Force Radio. And you can always email us, show at rebelforceradio.com. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Little Debbie Snacks. And uh, the Tops Star Wars Card Trader app. And uh, hey, join us later this week. We'll have more Rebel Force Radio. We're still reviewing Rogue One. And uh, we have some great guests joining us this week. Paul, let's you and me not put off doing influences for such a long period of time. There's too much to talk about in the Star Wars universe. And so we got to get back to our monthly schedule. I've really got nothing to say, Jimmy. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like put a nickel in him and watch him dance. Yeah. All right, Paul. Thank you so much. It was great getting caught up with you. And happy new year. Jimmy. Yeah, happy new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for Thank you so much, everyone, for listening for Rebel Force Radio's Star Wars Influences and Paul Bateman. I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember The Force will be with you. Always.